Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we have two guests, a rare two-guest episode. We have Jeet here, who's a writer at The Nation and also has a podcast there. Um, and we have Marshall Steinbaum, who is a professor of economics at the University of Utah, uh, and also several time guest on the show here. Friend of and the pod, that's right. We are talking crypto shills. We uh not so much about the details of crypto, you know, we may get into that uh, in the future episode, but you know, there are things you can buy basically is what matters for our discussion and they're incredibly sketchy. Uh and so why did so many people in, you know, culture in uh, you know, high politics and finance get into promoting this absolute garbage we've got fraud we've got uh insider corruption we've got uh congress getting their hands dirty and doing shady things all kinds of of juicy stuff yeah yeah mystifying mathematics and dubious assets and um all the other stuff that is basically part and parcel of uh, financial mania and subsequent financial collapse. But and of course, we've got references to Jeffrey Epstein, Kim Kardashian, and Tony Blair. So don't miss that. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a book by bad economists, but it's nevertheless a history of financial panics. It's called This Time is Different, which is meant to be a joke about how every time there's a big uh, crisis, it's the people say that. But it is true in the sense that this time is different in some important ways from previous financial uh, cra- crashes. We, we've, we've innovated new ways to lose money gambling <laughs> on bullshit nonsense. So, yeah. It's let's, a good one. Let's uh, get our interview with uh, No, Jeet. no, no, no. You, you got to pump the prospect, man. All right. What are you doing? What are you doing? I, I tend to forget sometimes. But yes, this, <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect magazine. Um, if you subscribe at the $10 a month tier on Patreon, you get a free digital subscription to the uh, website and a discounted print subscription if you want it. Um Otherwise, you can just uh, enjoy the bonus episodes of $5 a month or just listen to the free ones, rate, review, send to your friends. Uh, whenever your grandma sends you an email forward from Gateway Pundit, <laughs> uh, send her an episode of our Absolutely. show in retaliation. And one last thing before we get to the interview, um, we are ne- our next episode is going to be answering reader questions. So if you have a question for us, uh, something you want us to investigate, um, send it, email it to us, uh, leftanchorpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll take a look. Can't promise that we'll answer everyone, but uh, we'll, we'll read them all at least. So send those in. So let's get it, uh, into our interview with Jeet and Marshall right now. Uh, to, to kick us off here, talking about crypto shills. Thanks for coming on, by the way, Marshall Welcome. and Jeet. Um, I wanted to talk about the 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 cultural side of things um and maybe the best way to start about that start that would be to just recall the incredible deluge of crypto advertising that was at the last super bowl we had uh you know not only ads for crypto.com for ftx for i believe binance as well but they had a-list celebrities in them we're talking larry david lebron james other folks, there was a Matt Damon commercial that was before the Super Bowl, but it was also, I saw it on repeat on YouTube like 50 times in a row. Uh, 
And then we had a bunch of celebrity endorsements of um, this stuff. You had Jimmy Fallon interviewing, what was it, Paris Hilton um, about their just hideous Bored Ape Yacht Club alleged possessions. Eminem bought one of these things. Um, Kim Kardashian endorsed crypto crap in an Instagram post. Um, and uh, the the first thing about this, what, what really tripped my sort of sensors, my, my scam sensors, what almost every one of these ads was using FOMO tactics. They were like, oh, you need to get in. You know, like fortune favors the bold, said the Matt Damon uh ad you know or it's just like oh you want you want to get out you like referencing you know stories of people who bought ten thousand bitcoins back in 2010 and now we're like billionaires on paper allegedly um and so like do you maybe i could start with you uh g like do you have a sort of cultural uh thoughts on how this got to such mainstream popularity because one part of it is to be clear bribery uh, Kim Kardashian had to pay $1.3 million to the SEC for not disclosing the fact that she was paid $250,000 for that crypto post. But like, I'm sure there's plenty of scumbag uh, businesses that would bribe celebrities. And usually they're smart enough not to take on just like the grossest type of stuff or like, like just wade into something that spectacularly collapses like less than a year later. So what, what do you think, Jeet? Well, that, that, that's a really interesting uh, question. Like, why did the celebrities uh, go in on this? And, you know, like, I, I think it's been uh, disillusioning because, uh, to quote um, uh, Nancy Pelosi's daughter, some of our faves are implicated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, I mean, like, I like Larry David, you know, like, I, I like Spike Lee. Um, part of it is that um, it's an affinity fraud. And I think that um, as with Bernie Madoff, there might be some sort of association um, where the celebrities were themselves bought into it, but bought into it in a way that doesn't really harm them. Like they were kind of like offered crypto for free and uh, early on as, as um, or NFTs or uh, what have you, and were profiting off of it and then kind of sold it. Um, but also I think it, it plays to a certain um, the habits of mind that I think are common in in sort of celebrities and sports figures, like they're kind of aware that they're in industries where luck is a huge thing and where you kind of do like can become quite successful if you're bold and you put yourself out there. And, um, you know, like uh, I always think back about how uh, Nancy Reagan was into astrology and, you know, the best explanation I ever heard is like, you know, she's coming out of Hollywood and, you know, if you're an actor, there's all sorts of intangible things that make the difference between being a star and not being a star, having a good performance and not, and not. And so often things like, you know, superstition, magical thinking uh, can be quite appealing in that world. Uh, and I, so I, I do think that there's ways in which the crypto sell, um, you know, it wasn't just that these people were uh, corrupt, although they were corrupt, uh, but also that they kind of like bought into it to some degree. I mean, I mean, that's the best sort of scam, right? Where like the people that are selling it also believe it on some level. Yeah. Do you have thoughts, Marshall? Yeah. I mean, it was interesting to me to think back in light of the events of the last weeks on kind of the circumstances under which I first heard about crypto in the early part of the 2010s when it was very much a culture of sort of online uh, bros, 
from like broadly speaking the tech sector from finance i would say with a right wing uh cast to it um you know i was in the university of chicago econ department in a basement with a bunch of other graduate students at that time of which i was one of the very few on the left um and you know there was definitely a sort of culture of of uh, uh playing footsie with that kind of thing um and I think part of it was a culture, a subculture that kind of disdained Obama and the, that by extension, the Federal Reserve policy of that time. And that kind of hooked up with all of the sort of longstanding libertarian, um, hand wringing about the gold standard and fiat money and so on. And this was sort of a new techno version of, um, uh, gold mongering, uh, that has a long history in that kind of crowd. Um, so when you think about that, uh, milieu out of which crypto originated and come to the latter part of the 2010s and the 2020s and the Super Bowl ads and all the A-list celebrities you're talking about, you're seeing a sort of realization on the part of people like Sam Bankman-Fried and other people who, you know, clearly have ambitions to, you know, be billionaires with a B in the uh, Walter White sense, um, that the way to do that is to gain credibility and prestige by appealing to Democratic-aligned uh, forces. So you get Bill Clinton and Tony Blair on stage in the Bahamas. You get Kirsten Gillibrand. You get Larry David and LeBron James and all the other people you mentioned, Ryan, um, where you're basically putting a seal of approval from the more establishment kind of part of society on this once countercultural anti-establishment bro, internet bro type, um, uh, subculture. That's a way to make a lot more money. What's dangerous to me, I mean, aside from the obvious that, that uh, people lost a lot of money in a bank run and, and, you know, this guy went down in flames. Um, the, what's dangerous about that to me is that the idea that sort of the right is coded as anti-establishment and the left is coded as establishment and it being the sort of left's prerogative, at least in an institutional sense, to kind of say what things are acceptable in polite society and what things are not succep- uh, acceptable in polite society. That, that, dichotomy is very uh, dangerous in a world where the establishment is discredited and for good reason. So what you're getting is basically, you know, there's this discredited establishment with lots of people have legitimate grievances against, but the only um, legitimate outlet and and mode or, or, or modality of expressing those grievances is on the right. And, you know, when something goes uh, uh, more to the left, that means that it's gaining the approval of, you know, the varied denizens of Jeffrey Epstein's island, basically. Um, and I fear that that is, you know, one of the main signs kind of leading to overall societal crack up because that's not yeah. healthy. Because I think that, yeah, um, I mean, when we're thinking about like why this thing gained cultural cachet, um, I think the other thing is the sort of the glamour of tech. And the sort of yeah. um, that it's not like, you know, I think if you're like in Hollywood, you, um, you kind of have a sense of, well, Wall Street, like those guys are, you know, we, we already know what like Oliver Stone and Martin Scorsese have shown us about people on Wall Street and we can be distrustful of them. But I think like in a broad kind of liberal and even parts of like the left. There's a kind of glamour of tech going back to the 1990s. Um, I think a lot of the project of liberalism of the last 30 years has been to try to use tech solutions to social problems. And people like, you know, you know I mean, there's a reason why Al Gore, you know, um, wanted to associate himself with the Internet, uh, you know, and the famous sort of bridge into the 21st century and why, you know, Bill Clinton 
has this repeated history of being photographed with, you know, people who have sort of science -y tech uh, credentials who are like, you know, not people one should associate with. Going back to, you know, Marshall mentioned John Jeffrey Epstein, uh, but also like Elizabeth Holmes and now Sam Bankman Freed. And, you know, like one would think that, and I, you know, like Bill Clinton, like whatever you want to say with him is not a dumb guy, but, you know, there's clearly like this um, ideology that, you know, tech is glamorous and that these are people with magical powers and they can make money out of nothing like you know bill clinton still seems to believe that um so <laughs> then to some degree there's a basis for that just in fact that we have seen tech uh fortunes made out of nothing i mean like you know in some ways crypto is no more absurd than facebook like like why is facebook worth so much i really couldn't explain to you uh and so maybe you know like i could sort of, sort of see someone look at crypto and say well it's going to be the next facebook I wonder if you guys think, because you're connecting dots here between culture, glamour, finance, and politics, and it strikes me there's a very fire Festival vibe here going on, right? <laughs> and it's very much like not just tech is cool, but also like – you know, with Shorism and popularism and like the New York Times profile about David Shore's loft parties, um, like apolitical – quant or data analysis and substitution for real politics is cool. And there's there's this kind of link, I think, there between the coolness, the glamour, the, the apolitical politics and elite-driven politics and this emancipatory vibe from crypto. Like, you too can be cool and a billionaire and, like, emancipate – also emancipate everyone through investing in this, like, thing not connected to the state, Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's actually a ton to say about that, which may be getting ahead of ourselves in this conversation. But when I read that um, Shore profile about, uh, uh, you know, the sort of intersection of the um, like democratic political consulting world and the lobbying for a favorable regulatory regime for and, and just sort of like a party happening at a 2000 square foot loft in Soho um, – you know, it's – I mean, one thing that I certainly encountered in the sort of like democratic uh, – in, in like industrial complex, if you want to call it that, was this performance of savvy, which I, I think is, uh, you know, strongly associated with Shore uh, and Sean McElwee and similar people, which is like we're not those dirty hippies on the left. We understand how the game is played. Part of that comes from the the uh, mystique of the tech sector that you've just all been referring to. You know, part of it is like the fact that this you know finance guy who is suddenly a billionaire for no reason is giving us a lot of money to get his agenda through Congress and to like party with political people um, is uh, showing that we're not one of those bad hippies like this guy is paying us because why would he if we weren't giving something to him and so we're sort of like more down with it than you people who are outside the game and that's also part of the affinity fraud of the advertisements saying you know that that's like directed to the broad public of you know you should open an account on FTX because uh, LeBron James did the version of that that's directed to political insiders is the version that is uh, on display in that uh, shore profile, which is like, we're the savvy ones. You should get on board with us. We're the ones who really know what's going on. Those people making fun of us on Twitter are on the outside. They're, they're outsiders and they don't know how the game is played. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get to that more in detail, that glorious, I don't know how many articles this short guy got written about him uh, in the New York Times. It was at least three, I think. Um, but before we move to the politics, I think there's just one other thing I wanted to note that I there's a big um, 
the role of complexity and mathematics uh, in in like sort of snowing people over reminds me very much of the two thousand mid two thousands housing bubble. You had these mortgage backed securities and these collateralized debt obligations, and they're like you know arranged with these prospectus contracts that are like three inches thick. Um, and you know, it all looks very sophisticated and you can get your pet physicist from MIT to prove using data science that this thing could, couldn't possibly go wrong. And so, you know, half of Germany was just throwing money into these, these garbage, uh, assets. And similarly, I think, you know, all this crypto stuff, it, 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 you really get into the mechanics of it. It's, it's quite complicated, you know, you're talking about actually how the system works with cryptography and the blockchain and and like digital assets and strict uniqueness of NFTs and all that crap. But like most that seems to be for the for the retail investor on the street, just a sort of like, wow, look at this shiny, complex <laughs> thing. I'm getting into the thing that number go up. And at the end of the day, that's what people actually care about. Plus, plus there's there's so many acronyms. There's FTX, NFT, SEC, CFTC. <laughs> I mean, who the hell can figure that out? SBF. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, yeah. Every institution and individual is got their own little acronym. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I, sorry. There's a ton of threads to uh, pull on here. I think that's a very interesting one too. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and do just that. Um, uh, so you know, there's been a lot of coverage of the fact that SBF's parents are Stanford law professors. Iglesias said that somehow means that he must therefore be morally upright, which is a ridiculous thing to say. I will say, in the case of SBF, his mother has written very good books that have influenced my my work, and it is a little hard to imagine her son being uh, uh, as much of a, a moral, a moral uh, actor. As he is having read those books, you um, should have known the Buddha, the Buttigieg and Kamala Harris examples should have. <laughs> been there for yes, you. that's on. true. Yes, yes. People with good with good upstanding left wing academics can be horrible, which bodes poorly for my own children. So it's a good thing that I don't have any. Um, <laughs> the thing I want to say about uh, the the crypto side is so so. There's this other woman, Caroline Ellison, who is uh, his partner. I think she, her she was officially the chief executive of uh, Alameda Research. Um, her parents are academics too, uh, economists specifically in the MIT. Department. Um, and her father, Glenn Ellison, is the author of a book called Hard Math for Elementary School Children about his daughter. So basically, he, you know, as you can imagine, a sort of tiger dad uh, in the MIT econ department trained his daughter in this, you know, the kind of math that you have to do in econ graduate school, presumably, at, while she was in elementary school, because that's the sort of coin of the realm in the world that they, uh, that they move in. Yeah, boy. Yeah. I'm sure that didn't have any, you know, uh, negative side effects down the road. Um, well, but- I actually, the, the, when you mentioned that, like, it just happens to remind me, this is sort of um, the long history of this is utilitarianism. And, you know, famously, like James Mill used his son, John Stuart <laughs> as a scientific experiment in education. And that the uh, uh, young John Stuart Mill was basically reading Latin uh, Greek and I think a few other languages by the time he was like five years old, uh, <laughs> including like very complex texts like Plato. Uh, I had a nervous breakdown when he was 18, but uh, <laughs> that's another story. But I mean, it does, uh, there, there's some sort of connection with um, that sort of, you know, like longer um, 
style of, um, of elite liberalism and its sort of faith in education and desire to create child prodigies. There's definitely a strong a strong element in the sort of culture of academic economics that you know believes in meritocracy and has sort of grounded that, or I should say, epistocracy to use the the term that these people tend to prefer. Um, and you know. I would say verges on the eugenic because these people tend to think that their own children are, you know, smart by virtue of being their children. So there's a genetic component to it. But the more sort of acceptable way of voicing that is in this theory of human capital, which can be manipulated by parents in the form of, you know, teaching hard math to elementary school students that will uh, bestow upon uh, children the entitlement to rule and to prestige that, you know, sort of mask the class character and, and uh, 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 rigid social hierarchy kind of that's really going on. Yeah, it might be effective. I'm not sure how altruistic that is, but (laughs) that's one of those 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 great. Just a last note on on the the cultural side for the moment. I love the the these type of uh, branding exercises in you know theories or or academic departments. The effective altruism is like, oh oh, we're doing altruism, but it's effective now. Yeah, it's like uh, like objectivism, you know. Right? Oh, let's take something that's supposed to be an end in itself and instrumentalize it. What could go on? Yeah, yeah. It's just you know, it's like oh, altruism, but good now. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk politics for a second. So uh, we have uh, you know after this cultural you know deluge, and and in fact at the same time a massive lobbying effort. Uh, to obtain, you know, favorable regulatory treatment um, for crypto uh, basically seems to me like an, an effort to get it, uh, get some kind of backing from the federal government. You know, it's like that's a sort of flip side of regulation. Something like F- the FDIC deposit insurance massively stabilizes the banking system. And, uh, you know, if your entire industry is just a bunch of uh, criminals scams, then like that is very good to have. Um, it was, uh, bipartisan from the start. I think it's fair to say, uh, there, we, we at the prospect reported on this, uh, I, I believe it was my boss, David Dan, uh, dubbed them the blockchain eight, which is a caucus in, uh, the house of four Democrats and four Republicans. And in March, when the SEC was belatedly starting to investigate some of these companies, they sent a letter to them to try to get them to back off to Gary Gensler, the the head of the uh, SEC. And one of the companies that the SEC was investigating was indeed FDX. Um, And now they're all, uh, especially the uh, uh, chairman, they're the sort of most prominent member of the the blockchain eight was uh, rep uh, Tom Emmer from Minnesota, Republican. He's really backpedaling on all that stuff now. Um, in the Senate, you have uh, Kristen Gillibrand and Cynthia Loomis, uh, again, bipartisan. Um, Gillibrand, obviously, from New York. Uh, Loomis from Wyoming. Loomis, apparently, is a real crypto head. She's a, a hodler, as they say. And um, they actually wrote a bill in the Senate that was more or less drafted by the crypto industry. Uh, it did not pass, at least not yet. Um, but it was just like hugely favorable. And so from a Republican standpoint, this makes sense. This is like libertarianism. This is like, oh, we don't need you end the Fed, you know, Ron Paul type stuff like that all leads kind of pretty naturally into crypto. 
But Democrats, it's a little more complicated. And, and we sort of talked about it uh, already to some degree, um, you know, and, and there are some linkages there. But you would think, you know, after Clinton, you know, embraced deregulation in the 90s and it caused a gigantic disaster, <laughs> like less than a decade later, um, that uh, Dems would be a little more you know, a little gun shy about this stuff, but they haven't been. So, gee, you wrote an article at The Nation about how this has become kind of, uh, uh, in at least the sort of public perception, that Democrats are somehow more associated with crypto than Republicans. So what's going on there? Well, it's an interesting uh, uh, kind of question. I mean, I do, I do want to make clear like I actually think like Republicans are probably more associated. There's probably like more Republican politicians, even though it's a bipartisan thing. Yeah. Like more sort of active Republicans. Uh, you know, one could also mention Ted Cruz, who are kind of involved with it. And it's a more logical, like it fits in with their worldview very well, as you mentioned. It's a kind of you know deregulation and the Fed. Um, with the Democrats, um, you know, there's a surface level of just um, sort of geography, you know, like a lot of these people, I think a lot of the Democrats are in sort of a New York state or sort of adjacent in New Jersey, uh, Massachusetts. And I think the crypto industry was kind of like promising stuff to New York state, uh, weren't they? Like there was a sort of um, uh, prospects of sort of, you know, like money being thrown into um, uh, the uh, parts of the state that aren't doing so well and making them sort of, you know, new Silicon Valley area. So I, I think I think that's the more most fundamental um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, political economy reason. But I think that there, as we mentioned before, they also sort of like sort of like cultural affinities. Um, and like you know, once one sees that you know someone like Matthew Iglesias was like you know uh, defending the honor of Sam Bankman Fried uh, just a few <laughs> months ago, uh, so saying that you know like you know it's uh, the literal headline was it's not about crypto and that the the uh, SBF is for real. And what he meant was that he's really motivated by, you know, like altruistic motive. And it's not about, you know, uh, promoting this Ponzi scheme. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, beyond, we have also mentioned David Shore, Sean McAuley. And this sort of, I mean, I think the group of people that have aligned themselves with um, um, uh, SBF, you know, like they they are sort of coming out of, you know, what I think people call reactionary centrism. Um, and it's a kind of, you know, movement that's been coalescing for a few years, but I think really, like, really came together after the uh, George Floyd uprising, uh, which I, I think, like, historically, we're going to see as a kind of, you know, key moment. It's a sort of Thermidorian reaction where, like, there are people in the elite who decide, you know, like, things are going too far, we have to take control. And uh, as we're sort of reactionary moments of this sort, it's exactly the people in liberal spaces that are the most important. Like the people on the right are already opposed to this stuff. It's the fact that you have people who are liberals who are saying things are going too far and we have to clamp down on things. And I think SBF was a very attractive figure if you have that sort of mindset, if you're of the mindset that Okay, you know, like this uh, Black Lives Matter thing has gone too far. The fund, the police has gone too far. Me too has gone too far. We need to uh, rein things in. Um, if you, if that's your politics, 
then you, one thing you have to worry about is the fact that there's a lot of energized social movements out there. Uh, and some of them are receiving money from philanthropy. A lot of others are just sort of grassroots stuff. And, you know, like um, the sort of progressive wing of the Democratic Party coming out of small money. So you need to counter this sort of upsurge in left activism and SBF, like, you know, like, well, suddenly there's this like a guy who's worth $30 billion, who's very interested in investing in politics and being involved with politics and um, shares your kind of vision that, you know, like this uh, turn towards social movements is very destructive and that like really what one needs is a return to the sort of 1990s sort of technocratic politics of like real like experts in uh, the Democratic Party coming together and offering solutions that appeal to moderate voters and to sort of you know, drive home this project of being a sort of, you know, uh, Anshan regime restoration of like, let's go back to the 1990s. Like, let's, you know, dig up Bill Clinton and Tony Blair from their crypts, uh, re 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 bring them back to life. And, you know, like, I think in a kind of mistake, I, I don't think it's good public relations to ever take Bill Clinton to an island in the Caribbean. Uh, but but they did that. <laughs> and they, they uh, 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 but I mean, that was a fault. I think that photograph of Blair and uh, Clinton looking with awe on the young wonderkind that is Sam Beckman Freed. That maybe gets us to what the politics was all about. It's about re energizing the sort of 1990s um, center left politics, a technocratic politics, and um, having a billionaire who can support that because you kind of need to counter some of the new money that's out there. Yeah, Marshall, you want to say yeah, something? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Gene's interpretation is spot on. I want to kind of even be a little bit more explicit than he was. Um, I think that this type of reactionary centrist that he's referring to sees Sam Bankman-Fried personally or saw him personally as the sort of alter, alter ego to themselves in a slightly distant sphere. So what I'm referring to is the fact that uh, both Shore and Iglesias were um, sort of quote unquote victims of workplace uh, uh, drama where they were basically uh, uh, denounced by their coworkers for having engaged, we don't know the details in some cases, but essentially getting on the wrong side of the George Floyd uh, protests. Lesser known is the fact that Sean McElwee also is in that category. That happened a few years before, uh, so not in reaction to, to George Floyd. But all three of those people are uh, have grievances related to the sort of, let's say, to, to be reductive about it, wokeification of the, um, like progressive nonprofit industrial complex. Uh, for all the reasons that G said, they're sort of, you know, young white boy wunderkins who think that they deserve a leadership position and the kind of intra organizational Developments that occurred uh, before and after the George Floyd protests made that position that they feel themselves entitled to uh, 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 insecure and, and, in fact, impossible for them. So they sort of went outside the established hierarchies and got, in part, this guy to fund them, um, whom they see as uh, uh, the version of themselves, as I said, in a slightly different sphere in, in crypto versus, you know, the sort of like nonprofit world. Um, but you see this, I mean, I, I think, G, if, if you haven't written about it directly, you've certainly mentioned it on your own podcast. You see this in, in things like Iglesias's overt uh, antipathy to the Sunrise Movement um, and saying things like, well, you know, why are they getting funding? They're screwing things up for the rest of us. Um, also, the sort of differential, like, 
priorities priorities uh, that have arisen in the HR decisions made by um, these nonprofits, such that you know a person in Iglesias's position would have expected to be the head of some organization in a past generation can no longer expect that for himself now, and he's obviously you know wears on his sleeve that he's aggrieved by it. So instead, he takes to Substack, gets paid a ton more money, and has the ear of. Um, you know, this, this billionaire basically who's sort of like propping up his own challenge. So the thing is, you know, Jeet has rightly said they're trying to kind of re, uh, or resurrect a lost world of the glorious 1990s. Um, you know, they also see themselves as to some degree counter, uh, uh, establishment, anti-establishment because they've been excluded, uh, from the kind of, the, uh, uh, official organizations that are funded by the old funders like, uh, 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 Ford Foundation and Open Society and so on. Um, you know, they're kind of off on their own. Oh, but look, you know, they can kind of make a roaring comeback and make you listen to them, um, and make, you know, cl- clearly have the ear of, uh, high officials in the Democratic Party, if not, if not the, the Biden, uh, White House itself. Um, and, you know, that gives them status when you try to deny them status. You know, that is a feeling of vindication on their part that you can understand why, um, they would see that they have something to gain, something major to gain out of what, uh, Sam Bankman Fried was peddling. This is perfect. This is, this is the, the elite. Uh, white male liberal version of the wages of whiteness and like the, 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 the shadow of the MAGA, like grievance, uh, playing the victim card, uh, all in a way that links up its political, um, danger because of how the wokeification that you just mentioned and the, the, the social movements like Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd protests that you mentioned are the enemy in precisely this, the, the way that we see as defined by Ron DeSantis's lawyer who defined woke as uh, the, the understanding that America has systemic injustice that needs to be redressed. <laughs> and so if you, if you define woke as that and you, you see these guys as against it, then it makes perfect sense why they're against right the George Floyd protests. And, and, and it makes all the sense of the world that they are just a different version of the MAGA white guy who, who feels like, you know, the Muslims and the blacks are taking uh, power and wealth from him uh, because they also, you know, are complaining about, I used to be a billionaire. Now I have a hundred thousand in the bank only. I'm a victim here. Right. Uh, it makes, it makes perfect sense. Doesn't it? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And that, and now is the time when I, I want to, uh, I want to return to one of these innumerable New York times articles uh, this is about David Shore. The title is in the New York Style section: David Shore, a data guru for Democrats, throws one last bash. Um, just towards the middle of the article, his loft has become a destination for an ecumenical social scene drawn from tech, politics, academia, media, and New York City's 4 a.m. dance floors. Part salon, part Saturnalia. The popularist, it turns out, is popular. He is cool enough to be among the beautiful people, said Henry Williams, a Columbia student who does occasional work for Blue Rose Research, the political strategy firm started by Mr. Shore last year. But he's also the king of the nerds. The crowd at Mr. Shore's parties, including a recent Miami Vice-themed bash, tends to be brainy and hedonistic. One reason behind his transformation into New York's busiest host has to do with his beliefs on the use of urban space. Mr. Shore, who shares the views of a pro housing development, a group of pro housing development activists known as Yimby said that his (laughs) place nearly 2000 square feet is simply too big for one person. No one should have an apartment like this. He said, but if you do, you have an obligation to open it up to others. (laughs) And so, 
uh, Shore has his company, uh, Blue Rose Research. Um, I, I, sorry, I, I want to dwell on that quote that you just <laughs> yeah, read, you which, is basically, which is basically effective altruism for having your ridiculous loft in Soho paid for by Democratic consultancy money saying, oh, this is all okay because I threw a fancy party for all my egghead friends to come and do drugs in my loft. You know, so I'm a, I'm an altruist. This isn't <laughs> something that you should judge and think is disgusting. Yeah, the the uh, the people were mad about this one. I mean, these guys have a great publicist, uh, but that is a like a, you can read it in some ways. In one way, is to just letting this guy hang himself by his own words. Um, yeah, I, I got to say, I I don't know about sure, and maybe McElwee has a publicist himself now or did uh, before he got bounced from DFP. He himself was his own publicist for a long time, and he is damn good at it. And it's sort of a shame that he's kind of frittered it all away on this crypto crap because he is a talent. I have to say, I consider him a, or I once considered him a friend and yeah, uh, he, he, uh, you know, really, I mean, I think that article has him saying something like, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of people consider me a sellout. Well, I, for what am one of those people. Um, and you know, it's kind of like, I was very enthusiastic and on board with the foundation of data for progress when it started, because I thought that he had the right sort of sense about how to crack the like democratic party industrial complex, this phrase I've used now three times already. Um, and instead he just went to work for it. I mean, he's a complete sellout and used his talents for, for evil <laughs> when like <laughs> he convinced me he was going to use them for good. And, you know, I don't like being, uh, uh, made a fool of as much, uh, you know, a, a, any more than anybody else, uh, uh, doesn't like that. Yeah. Go well, ahead, I wanted to hit on that sellout point because to some degree, I mean, I, I do want to say like there's aspects of sort of popularism that like I, I have personally found attractive in terms of like argumentation, you know, like, uh, you know, sort of attentiveness to like um, the real world impact of policies and delivering things uh, and, uh, you know, trying to diffuse cultural wars and and focus on economics. I mean, like, you know, like there's uh, that sort of um, stuff that uh, I, I personally found uh, very attractive and even the less attractive stuff uh, that's not attractive to me, I still like might concede that it's stuff that one has to take into consideration when doing politics of, you know, like uh, paying attention to what the median voter uh, uh, is and what they want. Uh, but if there is a sellout though, it's precisely because you have to have an audience for your message and for the product that you're selling. And if you're already decided that the social movements are bad and that they're not going to be able to uh, give you what you want, uh, then what are you left with? You're left with the DNC. You're left with the sort of New York City machine politics. You're left with those are the people who are going to be buying your product, right? Like in some ways, I think the original sin or the original mistake here was the sort of uh, de decision that like social movements are just destructive and that they're leading democratic uh, uh, party astray. And once you cut yourself off from that, then you are left with only like really, you know, uh, machine politics and corrupt billionaires as the ones who can finance what you want to finance. Uh, and I would say, I mean, we mentioned Iglesias a couple of times. Like one thinks about, you know, like 1 billion Americans, which whatever one says about um, whether that's desirable or not. Like, if you actually have a politics, you have to think, like, how do I sell that to people? Who's the constituency? How can I get people on board on this? But, like, Iglesias' whole approach is just, like, I'll write a book, and then they'll be, like, you know, I'll convince the foundations and convince the, the elite. Like, but 
like it's it's such a to me i mean leaving aside the corruption it seems like a political dead end to like rely on like things that aren't real constituencies are just bags of money these guys are full of shit, Gene. Let me tell you why. <laughs> okay. I don't want to give any credibility to, to Shore or Glacius in any way. They all are doing the one neat trick thing. Like to the extent that something like popularism is true, it's cliche and everyone knows that you have to communicate effectively in order to win over people to support your policies, right? So, so what it really is, as you mentioned, is a cudgel and a cover for elites and the establishment to crush, you know, prosperity. Pr- progressive and mass political uh, agitation, right, against what the establishment and the donor class want. Uh, and like the reason that, you know, Iglesias has these, you know, nifty ideas that nobody thinks about because that's, that's what makes him just different. Like no one else is proposing a billion Americans, right? But like the whole point of all of these methods is that they don't have any consideration for how you get there or how you would get people on board. That's kind of the irony of the popularism thing, which anything that attempts to like eradicate the mobilization of mass politics is a kind of one neat trick that just re- like reestablishes the elite's power, I think. Well, I, I'm going to say that I, I and do, do the sort of annoying centrist thing where you people have just enunciated positions that are diametrically opposed to each other, but I'm going to say you actually agree because I think that, Alexius, what, what you just said is what Jeed was saying, which is that they have put sound principles to work on behalf of an elite that is trying to tamp down on popular social movements and – the reason why that one knee trick is effective or was effective, at least for a time in this case, is exactly because it has the tinge of uh, uh, reality and real politique that's appealing that Jeet was uh, adverting at the beginning of, of what he said. As long as we're not giving them credit for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we kind of got into this with our previous episode about uh, about this with Alex Perrine, but it you know, it is in a sense, like something that you could easily imagine Bernie Sanders being the archetypal example of how you communicate, you know, um, but it would not include stuff you just like gratuitous insults to, you know, your, your own core constituents where it's like, okay, so we have some, we have like a diverse coalition with like lots of different moving parts. We have to like not piss anybody off, not like punch the police uh, brutality activists, you know, because like it makes people with the money happy. Um, I want to, I, 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 I want to just hit, hit on that because this is something that I've been thinking about. We don't know. Do we know who Shore's clients are? Like, like they, they seem to be like um, a lot of New York politicians. Like I, I have a sense that he and uh, McAlee were very associated because of crypto were associated with these New York politicians who turned out to be the worst Political uh, politicians, just on a real politic level, on a level of actually getting the votes out in America in the last midterms, because yeah. they exactly followed a strategy that was going to demobilize people of left bashing, of uh, you know, like trumping up, like de- constantly talking about defund the police as a way to attack the left, but which also le- legitimizes Republicans. And so the people that followed this advice were the ones that did the worst in the midterm and actually ended up costing the Democratic Party like control of the House. Like it's just yeah. like, it's yeah. also, like yeah, you want to underscore, like just on the level of like practical politics. I mean their whole claim is like, well, you know, you might not like what we're saying, but this is the way to win elections. I, I just want to make clear, like, this is not the way to win elections. Yeah, I, I, to that I would add, we do know for a fact that one of Shore's other clients is the Democracy Alliance, uh, which is this organization of uh, uh, Democratic-aligned donors that sort of tries to coordinate their their philanthropy and and political donations um, in such a way. And and you know that organization 
came into existence almost 20 years ago, I think, um, to uh, effectuate what the right has down to a science, which is the, the sort of like lockstep organization of their donor class to serve the interests of the party, but not just the sort of short-term interests of the party to win the next election, but the long-term ideological project. Um, you know, the Democracy Alliance has differed from the Republican way of doing this in uh, over many years, long before Shore came on the scene, in that they really have solely uh, elevated the interests of the Democratic Party and its leadership in whatever context they are making decisions in over any sort of long-term ideological project or power building and social movement organization. So it's like really an arm of the Democratic Party's political committees. Um, uh, and you know, I think, I mean, I'm thinking here of a, a sort of semi-eulogy that uh, Micah Siffrey wrote about uh, uh, Rob Stein, I think is his name, the founder, the founding CEO of the Democracy Alliance, who died uh, um, like on the literal day that um, the Dobbs decision leaked. Uh, uh, Siffrey's um, uh, uh, eulogy of him basically says, you know, this guy's life's work is a total failure. They, it was a success in terms of raising a ton of money, um, but a failure in the sense that the ostensible agenda of the Democratic Party and its affiliated organizations is as far away from being realized and getting farther um, as it's ever been, despite the fact of all of this money being spent on it. Um, and I think, sure, you know, those type of people love to hear from what they consider to be the sort of like the the what I've said earlier the performance of savvy and Shore was very good at that and you know I think young tech types are very good at that in general so you know it's sort of like every election cycle there's a Shore type who gets elevated as being like okay this guy knows the numbers this guy's done the analytics you know people who tend to be involved in democratic politics politics aren't quant types themselves for the most part so they are easy to uh, delude with that kind of thing um, and it you know, constantly just cycle after cycle after cycle tells them what they want to hear to the detriment of actually getting what they claim to want. Yeah. Yeah. And to, and to close out this um, particular chapter here, um, you mentioned Marshall, Marshall, that Sean McKelvey is out at data for progress, which he like co-founded. I think uh, he had advised Sam Bankman fried um, he was associated with a lot of other uh, crypto guys. He uh, he and Shore co-hosted a fundraiser for Richie Torres, uh, a, a representative in New York who is a crypto guy and also a fanatical Zionist, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then he had made a bunch of bets on the election uh, that like the unpredicted, um, you know, which is sort of a way of you know, like this is very popular among this crowd of sort of like, like putting money behind your priors or whatever their favorite word. <laughs> uh, but also, you know, you could potentially tell a story. I, I don't think that this actually happened, but you could tell a story in which like data for progress were to release a poll that was wrong, that would bias the uh, result. And so you could pick up some cheap, um, contracts unpredicted. <laughs> I mean, that, that, like, you're, you're saying that we don't know that happened. We do know that that happened, specifically in Richie Torres's primary campaign. You know, he hired Data for Progress. Data for Progress put out a fake poll that said, you know, we, if we, the left, don't consolidate behind Torres, then the right's going to win this primary. And that 
uh, you know, succeeded in doing what Torres hired Data for Progress to do, that is him winning the primary. You know, we don't know that Sean bet money on the outcome of that primary, but yeah, in effect, he did. In effect, he did by taking Torres as a client because now he's got a congressman who's paying him cycle after cycle to do his polling. And it's like he is betting on the outcome of that primary. His client winning a race means that they're still around to keep paying him. Yeah, yeah. And that I was just- a f- fake poll. I just mean in the specific case of like uh, doing fake stuff so you could rig the predicted market that I don't think has been confirmed to happen, but it is gauche. It looks really bad, especially because his bets were all wrong. He was predicting a huge red wave did not happen. Absolute whiff. And so his staff rebelled and apparently the board uh, said he's got to go. And uh, Puck News reported that he's out. And I don't know if we want to say anything more about the dynamics of this sort of nonprofit thing, uh, about how the the nonprofit industrial complex, we've got lots of industrial complexes in that, this episode, uh, is um, involved, like, like it's such a huge part of the Democratic Party and it serves some, like, um, some useful functions here and there, but it's a very dysfunctional as well and uh, an unreliable ally at the best of time, is, as we were just talking about. Um, Marshall, did you want to? <laughs> sure. I mean, I think this is almost worthy of its own uh, podcast episode to talk about instances of its unreliability well away from crypto and uh, Data for Progress and McElwee. Um, but, you know, the coverage of McElwee's ouster from Data for Progress painted it as a staff revolt over the issues that Ryan raised countered by uh, uh, Data for Progress's program officer at the Open Society Foundation backing Sean and treating this staff result supposedly in the same way as that type of person has constantly treated this drama within the nonprofit world as like overwoke junior staffers yep. uh, uh, getting in the way of uh, uh, the institutional mission by raising internal bullshit to quote their own uh, terminology for it. Cancel um, culture. That- yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, like Sean McElwee's a victim. So I earlier said that, that, uh, you know, McElwee has had his own uh, instance of this. I actually wasn't referring to the drama over, uh, data for progress because, you know, he has, uh, uh, passed in other organizations, uh, that had a similar flavor to it. Um, in this case, you know, it just seems like they're trying to run the same, uh, 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 fraud again, which is to say, like, blame the least powerful people in the room for the mistakes that are made by the most powerful people in the room, the people who actually control these organizations and fund these organizations. And I'm specifically thinking of uh, the great uh, uh, prospect piece that came out this week by, I guess, Julianne McShane. I don't know if she's a colleague of yours, Ryan, or a, a, a freelancer. She's, yeah, uh, she works for embassy. Okay, yeah, it's a great article about the Institute for Women's Policy Research and its executive director who basically tripled the budget through her fundraising prowess, but totally gutted its research function. I mean, this was an organization founded by Heidi Hartman, who's a legendary feminist economist, you know, like one of the main um, uh, organs of like a whole branch of um, economics research that's uh, obviously super important uh, in this day and age uh, uh, in the policy debates that are currently ongoing. It's basically contorted the organization to be her personal PR agency and fiefdom and like it exists basically to elevate the status of one executive director um, at the expense of the organization's mission. Um, and it just seems like that's the model that uh, Data for Progress was supposed to be, or at least in the eyes of the Open Society Foundation, which is kind of shocking. That's what it's supposed to be. It's like it's not actually supposed to be a organization that um, I, I uh, aids its clients in, in uh, their political campaigns. It's supposed to be a vehicle for the elevation of one executive director. And if the staff's not on board with that, that's their problem, not the uh, organ, not the executive director's problem or the funder's problem. 
Yeah. Yeah, the 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 you you see this to varying degrees in a lot of different organizations, but um, I want to in our last few minutes move on to like real consequences. Uh, you know, like like this 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 meltdown. You know, you have two trillion dollars supposedly and counting of paper wealth that has evaporated, uh, and I think it's probably fair to say that most of that was owned by uh, like people you know hodlers who got into crypto early but a lot of it wasn't i mean probably in the hundreds of millions if not billions of dollars of actual money went into this crap uh and people lost a lot g you or you uh know people in ontario the the teachers pension funds um that lost lost big and so can you speak to this like the specifics of that and then and how it also like it clarifies the stakes of this the type of policy discussion and whether you know we allow this these type of scams to proliferate in the our society yeah the uh ontario teachers fund um uh which is like a huge thing in canada um uh put in like 80 million dollars into ftx and uh, it looks like they have to break that all off so it's like 80 million dollars that uh, had belonged to Ontario teachers that is not there. Now, I should mention the teachers fund because it is so big, like it's in, uh, you know, excess of $200 billion. Um, uh, you know, like this is like on the margins for them. They can kind of uh, afford to take the loss, but still, like, I mean, it is money that is like, you know, going away. Uh, and more to the point, I, th- I think the what we're talking about when we're talking about the real people that are losing is, uh, the fact that if this is a Ponzi scheme, then all Ponzi schemes work on the idea that if you get in early, you're going to profit. And the last person that's left holding the bag is the one that's really going to get hurt because they'll get something that's totally worthless. Um, and it's interesting to watch, you know, crypto as it developed, you know, as Marshall mentioned, you know, starting with these like, uh, uh, tech bros, uh, who are coming out of libertarian right and then becoming more popular with celebrities. Uh, who was the last person holding the bag? And to me, it's very similar to, uh, the 2008, um, uh, economic meltdown and the housing bubble. The last people holding the bag were going to be and are, uh, the more marginalized economic uh, people are more economically and uh, socially marginalized, especially people of color. Um, and one saw it in the ads that were like made towards the uh, the last year or so, where it's pretty specifically seems to have been targeting African-Americans as saying like, you know, like um, the man doesn't want you to get crypto, uh, but it, uh, the, the, this is the way you can make money. I mean, this is like literally the sort of like the Spike Lee ad. I think uh, Jay-Z did an ad. Uh, and so I like when we're talking about like consequences, you know, like this is a Ponzi scheme that uh, was designed, as was the housing bubble, to like leave uh, the, you know, people who are like uh, traditionally the victims of uh, racism and of a huge um, uh, wealth gap, you know, like making them like even poorer and even more marginalized. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the ironic things about this is, uh, you know, kind of going back to that early culture of like techno gold bugism from the early 2010s as against the Federal Reserve that was operating an expansionary monetary policy at that time and pretty much continuously since up until the last year. Um, ironically, they, that is what they relied upon in order to build their wealth. So they're like the anti-Fed 
anti-fiat money crowd who's like super into safety uh, and and uh, scarce supply of money and and the fact that you know you need a super complicated computer in order to generate more of these things and there's only a, a finite amount of them that's ever going to be created you know ironically in order to get that larger uh, uh, buy-in and and the sort of next level of the Ponzi scheme paying out, they needed an expansionary monetary policy. They needed all the people sitting around with excess money in their bank accounts during the pen, during the pandemic and thinking, okay, you know, I, the fear of missing out type thing. This is where I can put my money. This is what the sort of like GameStop uh, uh, run-up was about. You know, like the, all the people had a, extra cash in their bank account, and this seems like the, every. Uh, uh, validator in society is telling you that this is what you're supposed to do with it. Um, and suddenly when the Fed shuts off the, the lever and money gets a lot tighter, that's when the bottom drops out of your Ponzi scheme and you're left holding the bag. So ironically, they, even though as they claim to be operating as a, against the uh, Federal Reserve's uh, 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 expansionary monetary policy, in fact, they, they relied upon it to make their money. And the second that it ended, they, they lost out completely. And ironically, the very people who are anti-woke, uh, if woke is again defined as systemic injustice, are profiting off of the fact that systemic injustice makes people of color and marginalized people the, the people holding the bag, right? And the people that are getting punished. It's, it's like a good case study in what systemic injustice looks like, <laughs> right? It explains how, how it functions. Um, but maybe, Marshall, can you go back to explaining a bit, like $2 trillion in losses in the last year, can you, can you, you started to talk about why that happened and, and why it happened when it happened. Can you, can you for, for those who are a little unclear, like why did crypto crash like this? Well, I think it's uh, part and parcel of the overall decline in equity values that's happened since the Federal Reserve started tightening uh, monetary policy uh, over a year ago when they got uh, super spooked about inflation. So they have engineered at least a uh, bear market, if not an outright recession. Um, and when a bear market happens, people are a lot less liquid. And so they sell off positions. I mean, this is, you know, basically finance 101, and I'm hardly the one to, to uh, uh, be here explaining it. Um, but you know, as we saw, I mean, this is what happened to Madoff. You, you raised that comparison uh, earlier in this conversation, but you know, he was operating a Ponzi scheme for twenty years. The the music stopped during the financial crisis because everybody's uh, portfolios were going down. So he had too many uh, requests to liquidate that he couldn't cover from new clients because there was nobody with new money to, to invest. Um, and so that's when his Ponzi scheme fell apart is exactly when the overall market value, values of securities was declining. And that's what's happened uh, with crypto as well. Yeah, there's a there's a quote from John Kenneth Galbraith about the bezel that maybe maybe sums this up pretty nice. Uh, he says, uh, at any given time, there exists an inventory of undiscovered embezzlement in or more precisely not in the country's business and banks. This inventory, it should perhaps be called the bezel, amounts at any moment to many millions of dollars. It also varies in size with the business cycle. In good times, people are relaxed, trusting, and money is plentiful. But even though money is plentiful, there are always many people who need more. Under these circumstances, the rate of embezzlement grows, the rate of discovery falls off, and the bezel increases rapidly. In depression, all this is reversed. Money is watched with a narrow, suspicious eye. The man who handles it is assumed to be dishonest until he proves himself otherwise. Audits are penetrating and meticulous. Commercial morality is enormously improved. The bezel shrinks. And I think that explains you right there, Alexi. Like, That's got to be our title for the episode, The Bezel Shrinks. Yeah. 
you're just too like these guys are all it's all just a giant scam and as soon as the supply of just like free money was cut off and people started you know investing in like u.s treasury bonds instead it was like boom they just exploded you know um I just want to add one last thing, though, because I think, like, when we talk about consequences, so you had, like, you know, like about 12 years of, like, a lot of um, uh, low interest rates, a lot of money being pumped in. And, you know, like, in a more rational society, that could have all been geared towards climate change, right? It could have been, like, you know, the government could have been uh, set up uh, incentives uh, for people to, like, really push through with climate technology. And that was not done, or it's done only on a very small scale uh, compared to what we need. And instead, you know, like this, this this era of liquidity was used to like create things that are actually bad for climate, are actually like, as we said, a scam and are just like have no social value, no moral value, no aesthetic value, are just like garbage. I mean, like, like it's just an amazing and it's something we as a society have paid for. Like, like, like this is like a, 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 a political choice uh, that was made collectively. Yeah, yeah I, I just want to extend what G just said to the sort of political sphere because you're completely right on the financial and economic policy side. On the political side, one of the things that's so uh, depressing about what McElwee and Shore and all those guys pulled off here is that you know it seemed like we were finally building a kind of left presence within the institutional Democratic Party, and instead this guy with a ton of money for like two seconds comes comes along and seduces everyone uh, you know along his side. It's just a giant distraction, like the bad, and that's the best you can say about it. You know, it's worse than a distraction because it, it made people worse off. But what it distracted from was actually building. The ability to uh, uh, enact a policy that would have addressed climate change and other societal crises. And instead, we're left with like, oh, well, there goes the last 12 years and we're left with nothing, like no infrastructure, nothing to build on uh, going forward, only higher interest rates when, you know, in fact, what we need is long term investment. So that's like the worst possible policy mix you can have. So to quote yeah. another fraud, unfortunately, we are the ones we've been waiting for. That's what we we're going to have to rely on ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, the uh, the maybe one last thing here in our, our last few minutes uh, uh, to um, close the loop on your point, G, was that if we had done uh, what you suggested, like in two thousand nine, to do a massive green infrastructure build out, you know, not like the Recovery Act of a couple hundred billion, but like a couple of trillion over ten years, we wouldn't have been in the liquidity trap for so long in the first place. Um, you know, you have all this money and there's nowhere to put it because there's no real investment opportunities because the working class doesn't have enough money uh, in its pockets to buy what it produces. And so it all floods into the stock market and these scams and stuff. Um, and if we had actually repressurized the economy back to full employment and gotten interest rates up, you know, after a year or two, uh, building solar panels and doing green research and and wind windmills and stuff, then uh, that we could possibly could have throttled this whole crypto bullshit in the in the in the cradle, um, and we never would have had all this two the trillions of dollars in fake money in the first place. Uh, but that's you know what's this the phrase and margin call spilled milk under the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, any last comments, uh, Jeet or Marshall? 
I, I think the last thing, and I think we've done it throughout the, the podcast, but I really feel there has to be accountability on this. Like, I think this is like, has been like a huge disaster uh, for the United States, uh, for the world, really, and uh, and politically for the Democratic Party. And, uh, you know, like, I, I tweet about this occasionally, and most people, and they're very popular tweets, like, they get a lot of attention. And occasionally somebody says, oh, you're being obsessive about this. You know, you're talking too much about this. I, I, I don't know. Um, are, are these bots? Are these like uh, somebody's account i don't know but uh i will say that i, I don't think i have been too obsessive about this and in fact I, I would encourage more people to like look into this and to write about it because i think it's actually like really important and and we actually do need accountability because these people have really screwed up on a, on a massive scale uh the, like you know uh the, the like you know we should replace the word ponzi with bankman freed uh this is like not, not a ponzi scheme it's a bankman freed scheme uh and then they should anyone associated with this should be forever discredited from public life and if we lived in a culture of shame they would be joined monasteries and never speak again <laughs> wonderful wait can we do that with iglesias is that what's can we, what 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 should we do to iglesias we'll do another episode on that <laughs> i mean unfortunately sorry to at least from my perspective end on a down note i feel like the defining fact and uh, of our time is a lack of accountability for people in power. Like that is just the thing that keeps being the case that keeps these grand mistakes like the Iraq war and the Great recession and the crypto Ponzi scheme that keeps them happening because there's absolutely no mechanism for holding these people accountable, accountable. And they never are. And, you know, youngsters coming up like Shore and McElwee see that and they're like, okay, well, you know, this is the world we live in. So, uh, that's who I'm going to be too. And they just keep doing it over and over. Yeah. Yeah. No better demonstration of the folly of Obama not putting any of these bankers in jail after 2008 of the fact that, these 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 fraudsters with their like, you know, economic equivalent of a bunch of like lottery scratch off, you know, tickets like I've got the scheme that we can rig the lottery and they come up and they just buy like like 50 members of Congress in the space of a couple of months. And they're all like, yeah, sure. This sounds great. Uh, keep the money flowing. And like that was it was just that simple. Um, but, you know. Uh, we we do our little part. I mean, do our part did to get, shame them. We'll, we'll yeah. try to, to shame them as much as possible here and up. Yeah, as real people were ruined in this thing and are still being ruined. It wasn't it wasn't just all internet funny money, um, and that's no good. Uh, but anyway, yeah, we should probably close it there. Uh, Marshall Steinbaum and uh, Jeet here. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Great to be here. This was a fun conversation as always. Yes, uh, lots of fun. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.